All right. Great to see you all here. Love it. Like a full house. But it makes me laugh. I always think if this were a boat, then we'd be like this right now because there's most of you over like here. It's all right. It is. And when you stand up here and see like that side's like way, way overloaded. It's not a bad thing, but it's just I'm glad it's not a boat. But thank you all for coming. Thank you all for being here. And uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, see what God has for us today as we uh, get more into the book of Hebrews. So please uh, bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And uh, we are so grateful, Lord, for the opportunity to be here tonight. I thank you for each and every woman who made the effort to, to make it here tonight, Lord, in spite of the heat, in spite of just the craziness of her day, that she purposed, Lord, in her heart to be here and to meet with you tonight. And so I lift each and every woman up here, Lord, and ask that you would continue to Um, to be faithful to meet her here, Lord. Speak to her through your word. Speak to each of our hearts, Lord, and open our understanding that we might grow in our walk with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my mom never learned how to swim. And I think that's probably because when she was living in Colorado, she was in like fourth grade or something, her parents signed her up for for swim lessons. And what they did is they lined them up by the edge of the pool and just kind of shoved them in. And so she was terrified of the water. She was just petrified of the water. And so, I mean, with good reason. And so you think about it, you, she missed out on a lot of fun opportunities in life. I mean, you missed out. She was very scared to go on a boat, for example, things like that. And, and just, you know, pool parties, things like that, you, you miss out on. And so she was really determined that my brother, Ken, who's about a year and a half older than I, she was very determined that we wouldn't have the same problem. And so when her and my father began to look for a house in Alhambra to purchase, they actually considered buying one that had a pool. But since they didn't buy the one with the pool, what they ended up doing is in the summers, my dad would put up um, one of those doughboy pools about you know four feet deep, and it was big enough to learn how to swim, right? So now all they needed with this was a swim instructor. And that's where Gigi comes in. <laughs> so Gigi was a topless bar waitress. For those of you who grew up in the West San Gabriel Valley on Val- uh, Valley Boulevard, the other ball, right, which was uh, a bar there, a topless bar. And so my mom... My dad would go. My mom said, you're not going by yourself. So my mom and would go with my dad. And they struck, struck up a conversation with Gigi. <laughs> and uh, found out that she gave swim lessons on the side. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> and I know you're wondering, how is she going to connect this to her study? <laughs> So, but so here we're, we're like five to seven years old, right? And so Gigi would come over and, and she taught us how to, sw- <laughs> how to swim. But, um, truly my brother and I have been in the water ever since. And so we've been very, very good swimmers, very, very competent swimmers. And because when, of that, we, when we go to the beach, we'd go out way, way, way too far in the water, right? Because we were such competent swimmers with such confidence. And we love to duck under these big waves when they would come, Right. And um, finally, when it was time then for us to come back to our towels, we'd look up for our lifeguard station, and it wasn't there, right? So you'd swim in and have to walk like a quarter of a mile to go and find your lifeguard station, right? And what, why? Because we had drifted, right? That whole time, and we drifted. And, you know, um, when I saw the topic tonight about drifting, that's the story that came to my mind, because it happens. And many of us have experienced that same thing. You get in the water and you drift. And as believers, we have to be very careful because we can drift also. We can drift if we're not careful. And when the word drift has the idea of moving slowly, especially as a result of some kind of outside force, right, that just kind of pushes you along. And the thing about drifting is that it doesn't matter how strong you are, you could still drift. 
I mean, my brother and I, we were very competent swimmers, but we still drifted. And why was that? Because the current was so much stronger than we were, right? It was just so much stronger. Now, the key for all of this then is in order not to drift for us as Christians, we have to keep our eyes on the word of God. We have to keep our eyes on the word of God. If we had kept our eyes on that lifeguard tower, instead of play, 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 and then look up, right? And realize that we were off. If you keep your eyes on it the whole time, you kind of like get off a little bit and you make those little corrections as you go. But um, all of us, no matter how strong you, you feel like you are as a believer, all of us are, have that danger, that possibility of, of drifting. And so as we look in our study tonight, um, we're going to divide it into two parts. And the first part is going to be the end of chapter one. So chapter one, verses 10 through 14. And we're going to call that Jesus versus angels continued round two because we started Jesus versus angels last week. So this is the second half. And the second part is going to be the verses in chapter two, chapter two, verses one through four. And that's going to be don't drift from so great a salvation. And so as we look at God's word together, we just want to really open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit and let him show us so we can be doers of of the word and, and not just hearers. So I want to take a moment and read the passage. It's not that long. Starting in verse 10 in chapter one, it says, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Chapter two, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the first part, Jesus versus angels continued, round two. And again, if you were here for our introduction, if you weren't, I suggest you get the one that Trudy did. But just to give you a context, the book of Hebrews written to Hebrew Christians who were considering leaving their faith in Christ and going back to the laws of Judaism because of the persecution that they were experiencing And last week, Karen gave us the beginning of chapter one, and she showed us that Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. We saw that in verses one through three, and he's also better than the angels. That was in verses four through nine in chapter one. And she explained to us that he's better than the angels because of the nature of his, of his name, because he's the son actually, and the nature of his office, because he receives actually worship from the angels. And also because the nature of his person, that is, he's not only the son, but he's actually God himself, right? And so tonight in round two, we're going to learn two new reasons why Jesus is better than the angels. And the first reason is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. We see that in chapter one in verses 10 through 12. Now the quote here that I read is from Psalm 102. And a lot of your Bibles probably have those little footnotes. So Psalm 102, it's verses 25 and 20 through 27. And it says, you Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Back in chapter, uh, excuse me, in, in verse three up in chapter one, we already saw about um, the deity of Christ because it says in verse three that he was the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. That is that Jesus is that exact representation of God, the father. So in, in our verse here, when it says you Lord, that word Lord is referring to Jesus because he is God. Also up in verse two, we saw that Jesus was involved in the act of creation because it says through whom also he made the worlds. And in our verse here in verse 10, it says, um, you laid the foundation of the earth. 
Notice it doesn't say he, it doesn't say that he, um, like formed it. He didn't make it out of anything that was pre-existing, but he laid the foundation of the earth. He actually created it. So Jesus was involved in that creation because he is eternal. Now we have to remember that the creation is temporal. And we see that here. Jesus is eternal, but his creation is temporal. In verses 11 and 12, it says they will perish. They is the heavens and the earth. They're going to perish. The prophet, prophet Isaiah spoke about that in Isaiah 65 in verse 17, God speaking through the prophet says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So the idea here is that the creation is temporal because God's going to put it aside and create a new heaven, a new heavens and new earth. In verse 11 today in our passage, it says they will all grow old. Like we said, that's the heavens and the earth. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. And if you've read the end of the story, right, the book of Revelation there, we know that's when we see that happening. We see um, the destruction that happens in the book of Revelation. And then in Revelation chapter 21 in verse 5, it says, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So we know that the creation is going to be destroyed, but there's going to be a new creation. So the creation is something that's going to be temporal here. We get down to verse 12. It says, they will, You will fold them up like a cloak. They will be changed. But... You are the same and your years will not fail. So we have the contrast. His creation is going to pass away, but he will not change. And we know in Hebrews 13, 8, one of my favorite verses, and I'm sure for a lot of you, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he doesn't change, ladies. We look around us and things are changing like at a you know, light warp speed sometimes. Things change so fast. But he does not change. He is going to be the same. His years are not going to fail. That means they're never going to end or come to failure. It's interesting if you think about it because he presides over the changes of the universe, but he himself is unchanging. So he watch, he presides over that, but he is unchanging. James in chapter one, verse 17 tells us there's no variation or shadow of turning with him. So God doesn't change. Jesus is not going to change here. His creation changes, but he doesn't. So this is one of the reasons that he's better than the angels is because he's eternal. His creation is temporal. He's unchanging. His creation is going to change. The second reason that we see that Jesus is better than the angels tonight is in verses 13 and 14. And that's because we learn what angels really are. They're ministering spirits. The angels are ministering spirits. And the quote that's in verse 13, that comes um, in verse 13 is from Psalm 110, verse 1. And the full verse, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And this verse was very, very well known to the Jews. And remember, he's writing to like Hebrew Christians. This is a messianic psalm. And so when the Jews, um, when the Christians, the Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians, when they would hear this reference, they knew right away that it was referring to the Messiah. They knew that it's referring to Jesus. So it's God the Father saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand. It's a messianic psalm. And so when he quotes that, um, he like, to which of the angels has he ever said this? Well, obviously to none of them, because this is something that would be said only to, only to the Messiah, to Jesus. It says, um, sit at my right hand. And that's that place of honor or power. We've kind of lost a lot of that in our culture here. But in, in the Eastern culture, it was very, very important where you would, would put people. Maybe today, like on weddings, it's kind of important who you sit where and stuff. Maybe it's just for drama's sake. I don't know if it has to do with power and stuff. But, but you know, you put people in certain places. And at that time, it was more for the sake of, like we said, to honor somebody. You would put them at your right hand. In Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 3, something we saw last week with Karen, it says that after Jesus had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And if you stay with us through our study of, of Hebrews, you're going to see that phrase several more times at the right hand of, of the Father, at the right hand of majesty, at the right hand of the throne. That's going to keep coming up. That whole phrase, um, to make your enemies your footstool, it refers to that ancient tradition when, when a king would conquer someone, then they would actually um, put their foot on the neck of that vanquished foe, of that, of that prince or that leader, who, that noble who they, they're um, subduing. And so they actually will put their foot on that person's neck. So actually, literally, your, your enemy became your footstool. You would rest your feet on that person, kind of as a sign of your dominion um, over them. And we know that Jesus is over everything. We know that he is over everything. Um, in Luke ten twenty two, he said, Jesus himself said, that all things have been delivered to me by my Father. He is over all. In John 3, in verse 35, again, Jesus speaking, um, says the father, he says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So we know Jesus is above all. And it talks about here, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And we know Jesus has now risen, he's ascended, he's in heaven, and he, he has a victory over death in a sense, but that final victory actually doesn't come until the end, because death still reigns and rules here on our earth, right? So, I mean, he conquered death in the sense that he rose from the dead, but death still reigns and rules here on earth. But there's going to be a moment when he's going to put um, all of his enemies under his feet, and it says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, in verse 25 and 26, Paul says, that he, so Jesus must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So right now he has conquered death himself as he rose from the dead, but we know death still is out there. But what do we see in Revelation? That death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, right? And right after that, in fact, like the next verse said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So Jesus is overall every, over everything and making the connection back to the angels. Like we said, Jesus is seated on the throne, and the angels are standing around that throne which he's sitting on. So for us, again, um, he's seated, which means that he's like done, he's ruling, and the angels are around him. And they are those ministering spirits, as it says in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? In the Amplified Bible, it says, Are not the angels all servants and ministering spirits sent out in the service of God for the assistance of those who are to inherit salvation? If you think about it, angels don't act on their own initiative. Angels are basically messengers. They take the orders from God, right? So they're standing, I kind of think of it, like we said, they're around the throne. It's kind of like they're waiting like, for God to, to give them an errand, give them something to do. Yes, some of them are there worshiping him, but they're, they're there, they're willing, they're ready to do whatever God asks them to do. He sends them to make announcements, right? Like he did for the birth of Christ. Think about it, like the Christmas story, right? The angels all announcing that. They also announced his resurrection to, to the ladies who came to the tomb, right? So the angels, God sent them out with that message. In the book of Revelation, we know God uses the angels to carry out a lot of his judgments. We have those different trumpets, the different bold judgments, and there are angels that are associated with those judgments. Throughout the New Testament, we also see that angels are ministering actually to believers. There are two different instances where they actually open prison doors in the book of Acts. Once they open it for like Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. And then that story many of us are familiar with in Acts chapter 12 where the angel kind of comes and wakes Peter up and says he thinks he may be having um, like a dream. But the angel actually goes and delivers him from prison. At the end of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul was on a ship. Remember that? And that ship, he was, you know, people were certain it was going to go down. And he came out and said, an angel of the God whom I serve appeared to me. 
right? And told him that everyone was going to be spared. So God uses the angels. They're ministering spirits. He sends them out to minister to us, those of us who are believers who are going to inherit salvation. They even ministered to Jesus. If you think about it, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, after his temptation, it says that angels came and ministered to him. Also in the Garden of Gethsemane, during that, during that intense, intense moment before the crucifixion, it says that the angels came and they ministered, they strengthened Jesus. So God sends them out. They, are, they continue even today to be active. And they minister to believers. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it encourages us, don't forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So that person who knocks at your door or the sister sitting next to you. you know, or that person sometimes, who, those, those random acts of helpfulness that you get sometimes, right? You're sometimes like, gosh, was that like an angel God strategically put somewhere, right? At that right moment. And God does that. He has angels out there even today that they continue to minister to us. So Jesus is better than the angels. We saw last week several reasons why. And today we see that he's better than the angels because he's eternal and he's unchanging. And also because the angels are actually God's messengers. They stand around the throne of God. Like we said, they wait to get their um, orders from him. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The angels don't act on their own initiative. They don't take their own initiative, but they just do God's bidding. And it's interesting because as it says in in chapter 1, in verse 4, he's not just better, but it says Jesus is so much better than the angels. And in case you're not convinced... Next, next study, like when we get back to chapter two, after verse, when we start in verse five, we're getting round three of the sun and the angels here. So there's even more, but I mean, we see here, Jesus is just so, so much better than the angels. So that's like the first part. And now transitioning to our second part in chapter two, this part is just don't drift from so great a salvation. Don't drift from so great a salvation. And it's the verses in chapter two is verses uh, one through four here. And This passage is the first of five different warnings in the book of Hebrews. Remember, these are believers who are thinking of leaving the gospel and returning to their old religious ways. And so the author is warning them. He gives them a series of warnings. And each of the warnings have to do with the believer's attitude and also their their, um, thought towards the word of God, their response to God's word. All of, the, all of the warnings have to do with God's word. And you can look at this one, the first one, kind of as uh, the foundation of the other ones. And this whole warning here is pay attention so that we don't drift. That's, we don't, that's the warning here tonight. And if you think about it, and I know you've all had this experience, there are just so many people out in the world today who are just drifting aimlessly through life, right? I mean, no purpose beyond themselves, that is, to make money, maybe to have a family, buy a home, travel, but... You know, even those things are all in somehow they're related to themselves. And there are some people who do find a purpose to live for, maybe rescuing homeless dogs or <laughs> saving an old growth forest. I mean, people who find a cause, right? And they throw themselves behind this cause. Others go on, you know, other link themselves to other causes, like maybe ending world hunger or bringing into human trafficking. And at least those causes deal with human suffering versus dogs and trees. You know, so they might seem a little bit more noble, but the whole idea is still, these are just causes, right? You may dedicate your life to finding the cure for a disease, right? Like cancer, Alzheimer's or something. And again, very, very noble causes, but a cause cannot anchor your life. A cause cannot anchor your life. They can't keep you from drifting through life. You know, they can't keep you from drifting through life. So as we go through these verses, that's what God's going to talk to us about is the importance of not drifting. And so... First of all, we see in verse one, in chapter two now, in verse one, we see a warning and it says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. 
Therefore, based on everything that was said in chapter one, right? How Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is so much better than the angels. In the Amplified Bible, instead of saying, therefore, it says, it says, since all of this is true, since all this other stuff we just talked about is true, right? He says, we must give the more earnest heed. We, the author includes himself, because like I told you, all of us have the capacity to drift. So it's not like the writer here was talking like, you guys be careful that you don't drift. But he said, we have to give the more earnest heed so that we don't drift. Remember, this warning was written to believers. It's not for non-believers. It's for people um, who, are, who believe in, in Christ. Because non-believers, we know what? They're already just drifting around. Life is just, you know, carrying them wherever, right? Wherever the current takes them. It says we must give the more earnest heed. So it's not a suggestion, but it's an obligation, right? It's not optional. At school, when um, I'm a teacher, I teach fifth grade. And so there are times when the children have independent time to work. And we talk about your must do's and your may, your may do's. Like you, bet you need to do this. And then these are some options. This is not a may do. This is a must do, right? He says we must give the more earnest heed. It's, it's an obligation He's, to give the most earnest heed. The Amplified Bible says we must pay closer attention than ever. Pay closer attention. You've paid close attention to other stuff. Pay closer attention to this than anything else. Pay attention to what? It says to the things we've heard. And I thought this was interesting because the problem here isn't a lack of knowledge about the truth. Right? He's, he's, it's not like they don't know. He says pay attention to what you already know. Our tendency is to let our attention be drawn away from the things we know. So it's not a lack of knowledge, but he says, pay attention, give the earnest heed to the things that you've already heard. He said, lest we drift away. Lest can be translated as lest ever. So give heed lest ever we drift away. Give heed lest perhaps we drift away. Or my favorite, give heed lest at any time we drift away because it can happen at any moment. Again, it's very, very subtle, right? And again, that word drift, I mentioned it earlier. It has an idea of, of flowing past something, gliding by something. And the idea is to find yourself flowing by something or passing by it without giving heed to it. And so in our passage, the thing that we're not giving heed to is the things that we've heard. We've already heard these things, but we're not paying attention to them. I like what Chuck Swindoll says. He said, it's hard to imagine any context in which drifting is a good thing. <laughs> I laugh. I mean, a car drifting from its lane, right? A boat drifting off its course or a plane. I mean, drifting in no circumstance is a good thing, right? And in those cases, it could actually lead to, to death or to injury, right? Well, spiritual drifting has its consequences also, right? That can be just as dire. So drifting is never a good thing. And it says, lest we drift away. And so the logical question is, drift away from what, right? To drift away from that truth that we've heard, that truth that we've already known. Now, while this is the only place that you're going to find that phrase drift away in the scripture, the whole idea is found in several other passages. So it doesn't use the same wording to drift away, but I found some other ones that I think have a similar kind of idea. In Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 14, Paul writes and he say, to, the, to the Ephesians, he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. He warns them, he says, don't be carried about by winds of doctrine, trickery of men. So again, that's the whole idea. Don't get carried away from what you know by these things. That's what drifting is. Something takes you away from where you should be. He's saying, don't, don't get carried away by these, these weird doctrines or, or things that come around. In James chapter 1 and verses 6 through 8, James writes, he says, um, but let, let, him, let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and stable in all his ways. So ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed. Again, that idea that you're not in control. You're just kind of like going wherever. And he says, when we don't have faith, that can happen to us. We can just, our lives can just be like tossed here and there. And how do we get more faith? What does the scripture say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the word of God, again, is the, the importance of the word to help keep us from, from drifting and getting in those situations. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 12 to 14. Paul says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. So he's exhorting Timothy. He says, you know, you're going to suffer persecution. But in spite of this, you need to continue in those things that you've learned. And I thought about it. That's the same message to the Hebrew Christians. They're suffering persecution. But what is the author telling them? Don't drift from the truth. Stay, stay close to those things that you've heard, those things that you've learned. So that's that warning. Take heed. Don't drift away. And the reason, so that's the warning in verse one. And now in verses two through four, we see the reason why he says, don't drift. Now he explains why he says in verses two through four, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy spirit according to his will. So the reason don't drift away. Why not? Well, he tells if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, the word spoken through angels refers to the actual, to the old Testament law. You might be thinking, well, Moses, Mount Sinai, 10 commandments, that stuff, you know, finger of God. Right. But it, it actually says in Galatians three nineteen that the law was appointed by, by angels through the hands of a mediator. So Moses was that mediator, but it, the angels had a role in somehow passing that to Moses. So when it talks about um, the word spoken through angels, it's talking about the law. He's saying if that word spoken through angels proved steadfast, if it was firm, if it was secure, if this Old Testament, if this law that you guys as Hebrew Christians used to live under, if that was sure and true and firm. And then he says, and if every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Transgression has the idea of, what some people call sins of commission. You commit a sin. That is, get the idea of like a line and you cross over that line knowingly, you do something. That would be like a transgression. It's like a knowing, knowingly sinning, right? Versus um, when it says transgression and disobedience. Disobedience is also called those sins of omission. Maybe we are inattentive, we are careless, okay? But it's very different than being deliberate. But we're all guilty of both of those things. There's times we deliberately sin and there's times when it's like an oops that truly an oops, not like an oops, right? But a true oops, right? You know what I mean? As you're laughing, you know exactly what I mean, right? <laughs> but so he's saying, so if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and if all of those sins and transgressions received a just reward, just reward, that would be an appropriate penalty. Whenever in the Old Testament, when people transgressed that law, there was a just penalty. There was an appropriate reward, <clears throat> I'm waiting for them there, that penalty that they received. He said, if that happened and it was just the words of angels, then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape? Look at the word that was spoken by angels brought consequences, right? 
then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape? Different ways to translate it. How can we hope to escape? How then shall we escape? Or my favorite, what makes us think we can escape? <laughs> right? It's true. So what makes us think we can escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Right? Who do we think we are? Right? What it is. Escape what? It says, because it says escape how shall we escape? And again, the logical question, escape what? Escape that, that, excuse me, that just reward, that appropriate, adequate penalty that would be due to anybody who rejected the word spoken by the Lord, right? Those who rejected the word spoken by angels received their just reward. So then the, what we would be, what we aren't able to escape, I should say, is the penalty that would be due to us if we neglect what, what Christ has says. How shall we escape if we neglect Again, the word neglect, made from two words. One word means, is like the negative, like the not. And the other word is a base word that means to care. So to neglect actually has the idea to, to not care, to be careless. But again, like I just said, not like the oops, careless. It's like we don't care. So we're careless, like I don't care about it. It has um, the idea of, of making light of something. So it, when you don't care about it, just you treat it lightly, kind of like with disdain. It shows like a lack of importance. So to neglect something is to make light of it, to have a lack of importance. So he's saying, how can we escape if we neglect, if we make light of this great salvation that we have? Warren Wearsby says, more spiritual problems are caused by neglect than perhaps any other failure on our part. We neglect God's word. We neglect prayer, worship with God's people and other opportunities for spiritual growth. And as a result, we start to drift. So neglect is one of the biggest things that can impact us as Christians. One commentator says, as the farmer will lose his harvest by simple neglect, as the businessman will become bankrupt by simple neglect, as the scholar will strip himself of his attainments by simple neglect, so the surest way by which to accomplish irre- irremediable ruin of the soul is just to neglect so great a salvation. So it will bring, it will bring, um, it will bring ruin to our souls. He says, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The idea of a great salvation here is like so mighty, so vast of a salvation. It describes the immense value of this salvation that we have. The pricelessness, if you would, of this salvation. And if you think about what makes it such a great salvation, right? And he goes on to, I'm glad you asked that. He goes on to explain, right? He says, because he says, so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness with both signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts. So what makes it such a great salvation? First, it was spoken by the Lord. And I bet you saw the contrast here in verse two. It talked about spoken through angels, right? Word spoken by angels through angels and now spoken through the Lord. So he's making the contrast between the two. So this great salvation, it's a great salvation because it came through the messenger of Jesus Christ himself. And remember, he's so much better than the angels. So there was a message by the angels, a message through Jesus, who's better than the angels. So which one do you think, right, is going to be better? And he says, not only that, it was also confirmed. This great salvation was confirmed by those who heard him. That is, people who heard Jesus. They, Jesus himself spoke of this salvation. There are people who heard him, right, the, the, the multitudes, the disciples, the apostles. They heard him. It was confirmed by those who heard him. It was, made, it was established by those who heard him. Throughout the book of Acts, which is the history of the, of the first century church, we see that they're constantly t- making reference to the things that they heard. In Acts chapter 5, 
the apostles are in verse 32. They said, we are his witnesses to these things. That is to everything that they saw, to everything they, that happened to Jesus. They were his, their witnesses to that. And also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to, the, to those who obey him. So they were witnesses of all these things. Peter, when he spoke up in Acts chapter 10, he says, we're witnesses of all the things that Jesus did. So Jesus spoke, and then all the, that was confirmed by all these other witnesses, right? By all these other people who heard him. Now, I love it. In 2 Peter chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, I think Peter makes a really good connection here. As he talks to the, the believers, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you these things. In other words, the things we shared with you, they aren't fables. The things that we shared with you were, were things that we saw. We were eyewitnesses of, of the majesty of Christ. So why is it such a great salvation? Because it was spoken of by Jesus. Also, those who heard him confirmed it. And the icing on the cake is that God also bears witness of this message. God also bears witness of this message. How does he do it? With signs and wonders, right? With miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. After the resurrection, in, in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, it's, Mark writes and he says, And the, they, the disciples, they went out and they preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So the signs and miracles that, that, were very, that they saw in those days were a, were a witness to what, from God, God was witnessing to the message, the power, to the truth of that gospel message. Later on in Acts chapter 8, we know that Philip also, it says, um, it's, it says in Acts 8, 6, the multitudes with one accord, they heeded the things spoken by Philip when they heard and saw the miracles he did. So the miracles and the signs that were done by the apostles and those in the first century there, those things attested to the fact that this is, that the message was true. Hopefully you also notice as you went through here that we have the whole Trinity involved in the proclamation of the gospel here, right? Because it was spoken by Jesus, right? Who's the son. God the Father bore witness of it. And how did he do that? He confirmed it by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the whole idea here, it's a great salvation. And what is it that makes it such a great salvation? Because it was spoken by the Lord. It was confirmed by all these other people, the witnesses. And even God himself, God himself gave witness of that. You know, in 1 John Chapter 5 and verse 9, John writes, he says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And if you think about that, we believe people when they witness something, when they like tell us as a witness about something. So if we're going to believe people, what about God's witness? So God is testifying that these things happen, these things are true. So his witness is a much, much greater witness. And imagine, this is the witness that these Hebrew Christians had. They heard the message from Jesus. They heard, the, they heard it confirmed. They had all these signs and wonders, and yet they were considering what? Walking away from it. So he's saying, what's going to happen if you neglect this great salvation? Look what happened to the people in the Old Testament when they neglected and walked away from the words of angels, right? The law. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, as, we, as I go through and do a study, and we all have different ways of doing it, and usually I try, as we go through, I try to stick application, like, through the verses, like, as we talk about something, make, like, a, a link, an application. But as I was doing it this time, I felt like it really kind of chopped things up, and so I just saved it all and made a whole other section. So this is the application. <laughs> so it's all right here. And because, it was, like I said, it was just kind of, I just didn't like the way it fit last way before. So anyways, but two, bottom line, two main points that we can walk away with from here. And one of them is don't drift from what we've been taught and don't neglect so great a salvation. 
And actually, they're, they're both very similar. They're kind of related. But I want to make a few comments about each one separately. And the first one is, don't drift from what we've been taught, right? And as we mentioned in the introduction, that key to not drifting is just to keep your eyes on God's word. If you keep your eyes on God's word, you're not going to drift. So how is it that you know if you're drifting? Because you know the object that you picked to fix your eyes on isn't moving, right? Well, my brother and I said, okay, there's our lifeguard tower. And we looked up and it was gone. It's not like, hey, the lifeguard tower moved, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, the thing that you fix your eyes on doesn't move. So then when, when something happens, it's you who's moved, right? We're the ones who drift. And so if you look up and you keep your distance, you know, as you see yourself moving, you make little corrections. It's way easier. As I said, if my brother and I hadn't been busy, play, 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 and look up and finally we're a quarter mile away from the lifeguard station, you know, if we just kind of looked up every now and then, we'd like, oh, a little bit off, right? Get a little bit back. So that's what we need to do as believers. We need to fix our eyes on God's word. In Luke 21, 31, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Like I said, fix our eyes on something that's not going to move, right? Something that's steady there. The word of God is the only thing that we can depend upon. You know that. You can't depend on your BFF. You can't depend on your spouse, your job, your 401k, even though the stock market hit a new high again today, right? But you can't depend on those things, right? We can't depend on those things. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Again, we want to fix our eyes on something that's steady, something that's not going to move. Job 23, 12, Job says, I have not departed from the commandment of your lips. He didn't drift. Why? He says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So Job said, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We need to do that. Put that importance in God's word. Psalm 119, a verse, many, and verse 105, a verse many of us know. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Do you find that you need wisdom in a situation of your life right now? Maybe you're wondering what God's plans are. What are those next step he wants, steps he wants you to take? Then where are we going to get that from? From his word, right? His word's going to light that way for us. His word's going to be there. So we need to fix our eyes on, on his word so that we don't drift. So the first thing, again, just don't drift, ladies. Just don't drift. Second thing is don't neglect so great a salvation. That's the thing. Don't neglect it. Earlier I said that neglect means to not care about something, like to make light of it, to be kind of careless about something. And it really signifies a lack of importance is what it does. Now, there's certain things that you can neglect and it's not a big deal. I mean, you can neglect some chores for a while. You can neglect to call someone and just, you know, apologize, you know. But certain things aren't that dire, but we had better not neglect this salvation that our Lord Jesus Christ purchased for us, right? With his own precious blood. We can't neglect this. This is, this is not something we can do. And remember that neglect doesn't mean to reject it, okay? Because he's writing to Christians here. Now, a non-believer rejects God's offer of salvation. But as Christians, you and I, we've accepted that offer of salvation already. We're born again into God's family just like the Hebrew Christians were. But accepting the Lord and giving him your life is only that first step, right? In a whole life of walking with Christ. That first step is giving him your heart. And what's God's desire in all of this is to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But if we neglect this salvation, then that transformation is not going to happen. If we neglect this, this salvation that God has given to us, that transformation is not going to happen. And so I was thinking, okay, what are some ways that we can neglect our salvation? Because you know, it's one thing for me to say, don't neglect it. But what are some ways we can neglect it? I think one of them is we get too busy. Is there anybody here who isn't too busy? <laughs> is there anybody who can spare a couple hours for me? <laughs> Give me a couple of your extra hours, right? 
So we're all busy. We're all busy. And in, in the Gospel of Luke, there was that, that parable of, of these people who were invited to a great supper, right? And they were invited, but they all started making all these excuses. I have to go see the land that I purchased. I have to go try out my, you know, take my oxen for a spin, right? Yeah, whatever it is. The guy just got married. So you have all these things that they need to do. But if you look at it, they all used ordinary, everyday tasks to say no to God, right? They all use, and these were things that they had to do anyways, right? But they use all these things to make themselves so busy to accept his invitation. In the Sermon on the, on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So in your too busyness, you know, we, we have to make sure we always make that time for God, though, because then all that other too busy stuff is all going to fit. It's all going to be added to, to our schedule. Anyways, it's all going to work. In the parable of the sower in, in Matthew chapter 13, as, um, you know, as the word fell on the hearts, the different hearts, there's that one it fell, and the, thorn, the thorns choked out the, the plant that grew up, right? And Jesus explains to us in Matthew 13, 22, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So that's what, that's what can happen. We get too busy. God's word gets choked out of our life. All the cares of the world, all, like I said, all the stuff we have to do, um, but if we don't make God's word a priority, then, then um, those things get in the way and they choke out God's word in our life. And then again, passage from our summer series, right? In Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha thing, right? Verse 42, what did Jesus say? But one thing is needed and Mary's chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her, right? And that's what we all need to do, ladies. We need to choose that good part. Don't neglect our salvation by getting too busy. Don't neglect that salvation by getting too busy. Another way we neglect it is by procrastinating. And nobody here I know has that problem. In Acts chapter 24, at the end, in verse 25, you know, Paul is there and it says in Acts 24, 25, now as he reasoned, that's Paul, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix, the governor who was listening to him, was afraid and he answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Now, do you think that Felix ever called Paul back? I mean, if we had, Luke would have told us, right? So, I mean, he, so he's, oh, I'll call for you another time. He's just putting it off. His procrastination was in regard to salvation. Now, that's not our situation here, you know, because Paul was reasoning to him about the salvation and judgment. And, and the assumption here is that we're all believers, just as in, in, um, in Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, the message was to believers. So I'm talking to you as, as a believer here. So his procrastination, Felix's, was in regard to salvation. And that's not our situation. We're not procrastinating to accept the offer of salvation, but we do procrastinate, right? Has the Holy Spirit ever spoken to your heart about something and you brushed it aside and ignored it? Maybe you're at church, you had a Bible study, sitting here right now, right? any of these things, right? And, but sometimes, or you could be reading your Bible on your own, right? And you get that little, like that little, <clears throat> you know, like, right? And then it's like, you know, Kathy, we need to talk. I'm like, okay, Lord, but not right now, right? I got to go to work. I got to, I got to, I got to, whatever, right? But so God tells us, he, he prods us when he's like, you need to ask for forgiveness. Cricket, crickets, right? Quiet, <laughs> nothing, whatever it is. But he prods us. He shows us those things. And the question is, let's not procrastinate, right? When he does that, let's not neglect this great salvation that God has so graciously extended to us. When the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart gently or not so gently, however it is, when he does that, don't procrastinate. Respond to him. I mean, do any of you like to be ignored? I mean, none of us do, right? And especially as parents, right? You're probably like, you know, don't, don't ignore me. Like, Turn around and listen to me, right? You know, I mean, think about it. When God's, God's talking to us through his Holy Spirit, don't ignore him. 
Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. And another way we can neglect is we can become insensitive. And actually, this is what happens when we procrastinate. Because if we ignore the Holy Spirit after he speaks to us, then after a while, we just become insensitive to him. Now, Paul, in, in the, at the end of, of the book of Acts, in Acts 20, chapter 28, verse 27, he's quoting the book of Isaiah. And he's talking, Paul had just got done talking to some, some Jews. And then he says, um, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so I should heal them. They closed their eyes, they closed their ears. They became dull of hearing, right? It reminds me of Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 right? That's just, that, they, just tuned, they just tuned Paul out, right? They just kind of became insensitive. God is speaking through Paul, and, and they just, they're, they're not even hearing it anymore. So let's not be like that, right? Instead of being like that, let's open our hearts to the Holy Spirit so that God will say to us, as he says in Isaiah 30, um, verse 21, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or the left. We want to hear him as he guides us. We don't want to tune him out. We don't want to become insensitive so that we don't even recognize his voice anymore. And that become, that's, can happen when we procrastinate and when we become too busy. One commentator said it this way. You don't have to work hard to, ruin, to secure your ruin. Neglect alone is sufficient to bring you under the most terrible condemnation and punishment. Disregard the offered salvation and all the dread consequences of sin will fall upon you with pitiless and inflexible severity. Now, this is not the warm, fuzzy ending that you expected, right? But I, but I thought about it. It's like, it's a warning. So what do we expect, right? So, I mean, he's warning them. And if we're reading it, then that means he's also warning us, right? So we have to take God's word and we take it. And so remember the question at the beginning, excuse me, the question earlier, it was, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And it's one of those rhetorical questions. We all know the answer. We won't, right? We won't. So if there were consequences for those who disobeyed the Old Testament law, which was spoken to men through angels, and then don't you think there's going to be consequences for those who disobey the words of Christ? Of course there's going to be. But the great news is, and this is what I want you to all go home with, and I want you to mope out of here. The great news is we don't have to be those people who disobey. We don't have to be the people who drift away, right? We don't have to be the ones who neglect that salvation. We can choose to keep our eyes on God's word and obey it. Right? We can choose to embrace this salvation that he gave us and walk in it daily. No, our walk's not going to be perfect. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. But when our Heavenly Father, then he sends his Holy Spirit to show us our sins, let's agree with him. Let's repent and ask for his forgiveness. Right? So we don't have to be these ones who drift away. We don't have to be the ones neglecting it. It's a dire warning to those who do, but that doesn't have to be us. Right? We all got that? A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorite authors, but he's just really a straight shooter. He says, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. He is as holy and as filled with the spirit as he wills to be. And as I said, we can decide tonight, are we going to be the ones who drift and neglect? Or I hope not. And I hope this is going to be the beginning, actually, of a renewed commitment for all of us to walk in obedience to God's word. All right, ladies, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, that is the desire of our hearts, Father, is to, to learn from the warnings in scripture, Father. We see what can happen to those who, who drift, to those who neglect the salvation, Father. And we don't want to be those people. We want, Father, to keep our eyes fixed on your word. And it's difficult, Lord. It's difficult. We all go through different things. There's all sorts of things happening in, in the lives of these ladies, Lord. But I pray for each and every one of them, God, that, that they would 
make that renewed commitment to fix their eyes on your word. And as they do that, Lord, that your word would become an anchor for them and would hold them steady through the storms that they travel through, Lord, that they would have your word as a point of reference, that you would guide and direct them. I pray for each of us, Lord, that that we would not neglect this salvation, Lord, by becoming too busy, Lord, by procrastinating, Lord, by becoming indifferent to, to your voice as you speak to us. Lord, that we would be quick to respond to those things that you point out to us. Again, Lord, I thank you for each and every woman here, Lord, and her desire to grow in her walk with you. And I ask that you would help her in that, in that endeavor, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.